Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to today's show. Do I have a treat for you? Today, I'm going to have you take a walk on the wild side with one of my best friends. His name is Walter Schneider, and Walter is, uh, in his professional life, he's the president and co-founder of REMAX Integra, which is the largest individually owned organization inside the REMAX International brand. Uh, Walter leads over 37,000 real estate agents in 36 countries throughout the globe. A remarkable businessman, but an even greater man than a businessman. Walter is quite the renaissance man. He's also Canada's honorary consulate general for Austria, the ancestral home of his family. Walter and I have spent many a night supping a glass of wine, having dinner, breaking bread, being in each other's homes. A good man with a great life. Walter, we are honored to have you here today, pal. Great to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, we're going to kind of walk down the road here. We'll have a bit of fun. This show is all about bringing people who've been there and done that to light. And Walter, you and I were talking offline, you know, someone can be on The Apprentice on Tuesday, have their best-selling book on Friday, and be doing a corporate talk the following Tuesday. And no one ever seems to ask anymore, what did you do before you wrote the book? (laughs) In the world you and I come from, it's been one of hard graft, starting with nothing, building what others call a rags-to-riches story, and now spreading the wealth and sharing the good news with other people and helping them become successful. I'd love to kind of start at the beginning. You were the child of two immigrants who left war-torn Europe to move to Toronto and start over. Can you tell us a little bit about the early years in the Schneider home? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you capsulized it well. I was the only child, and my mom and dad came from the Austrian-Yugoslavian border. They lost everything after the Second World War, and basically Canada was happy to take them. And my mother arrived in Canada in 1948, my father in 1950. They had a little romance, I guess, before that, and then uh, she sent for him. He came over. They both came over by ship, interestingly. The ship that brought my dad over sunk on the way back to Europe. Wow. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) Glad he bought a one-way ticket. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, You know, and that was that era when they had, I think, all these converted uh, Greek freighters were turned into passenger ships to move these massive people that came across. And uh, their journey was, you know, they started not a lot of education, but just a lot of skill. And uh, they made a life. They got married in 1950. My mother actually started in Bozeger, Manitoba. Mm. as a domestic, and uh, they came over, and then they gravitated to Toronto for uh, family and cultural reasons, and they made their life, and they, you know, they uh, found a home, and uh, the images that I have most of as a child was that they were able to buy this very modest home in, in center of Toronto, and uh, the only way that we could live there was that our house was full of boarders. Mm. So I remember every nook and cranny of the house being rented out to all these other immigrants that were coming over. Wow. And, uh, I slept in a little cot in the corner, which I still have today. It's at my lake house up in Muskoka. But, wow. Uh, as a reminder of those days, I didn't have my own bedroom until I was like nine or ten years old. And wow. I didn't have my own bed. And, but you know what? I think I got great strength from that. The interesting thing I think about me was that I spoke German as a child, which has turned out to be a great gift today. I can still speak it. And, yeah. But when I started the first grade at my local school, I was in a corner with a group of other immigrant kids that uh, none of us could speak English. So... 
Miss Gordon, our first grade teacher, would uh, put up this uh, picture and like, you know, dog. <laughs> 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 and it's funny i spoke english with an accent probably till the fourth or fifth grade wow. as i acquired the, the language and then uh, i always remember i couldn't get the th sound till about the fifth grade because my mother would always say dirsty and right so isn't that funny that's the irish struggle too you know they used to say this that these and those right that was the right. dublin way <laughs> all right 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 so you know one of these anglo kids took me aside one day at the water fountain i said i'm dirsty i need a drink <laughs> And uh, <laughs> so my good friend Earl took me aside and said, man, it's thirsty, thirsty. But, you know, I mean, that language sat with me, and it was great. And today it's an incredible tool that I use when I work in Europe. And uh, I'm so grateful that I, I have that second language. I have two and a half, really. I have some French because of growing up here in Canada. Sure. So let me talk about this because... Uh, you know, obviously, we become who we are because the adversity we face in life. I always tell people, I didn't know I was poor till much later in life. Is that how you were? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, my mother had five brothers, four of them lived in the United States. It's actually by accident she ended up in Canada. Hmm. She was destined to go to New York where her four brothers were, who had come to America before the Second World War. Hmm. My mother was the youngest of six. But, I mean, for me, the care packages from my cousins in New York, she was the youngest, and I was the youngest of 12 or 13 cousins. And they would always send me up the pants that didn't fit anymore, the shirts. So, I mean, I don't think I got any new clothes until I was probably 10 or 12 years old. Yeah. Which was fine. You know, you look back at the time, you kind of felt, I think, the time you felt maybe self-conscious of it. But I think it built an incredible strength that I've used my whole life. Well, the good news is you got out of the cot and you got the new clothes. It seems like all at the same time. Those are big times there in Canada. (laughs) As you went on, and we're going to talk about your climb to success because I think... That path and the struggle and the challenge and the ups and downs and the drive it took, I think is super helpful for people listening here today. We live in a world today where a lot of folks want it quick and they want it instant and they want it painless and they want it for three payments in 1995. We'll get into your path to success later on, but what do you think are the essential qualities that your early childhood and going through the adversity gave you? Well, I think you have to be able to dream, first of all. I think Mm. you have to have big dreams. We People talk about vision boards and things like that. I just always dreamt about, mm. you, know, you dream, you aspire. I think you've got to get up in the morning. There's no substitute for hard work. There's dedication. I certainly witnessed that with my parents. Mm. I think that you learned about right and wrong. That's a very easy lesson to live. So I think if you live your life on the light side, not the dark side, you'll be rewarded for that. Mm. It's just, you know, I think you're right. We live in a world of instant gratification, and I never expected that. I was very prepared to work and, you know, save my pennies. And I was the kid in the neighborhood when my parents moved out of inner city Toronto, which, by the way, was one of the toughest neighborhoods in the city. We moved out to the burbs a bit. And, you know, I saw the opportunity to cut lawns and shovel driveways and rake leaves and do whatever I could. And I was the kid that was, you know, not privileged enough to have the swimming pool in the backyard. So I went and figured out a way to to make some money and, uh, you know, a buck 50 a lawn, I think. So I can still remember that. So you, you learn those values. I think you learn to I've always said that successful people will spend below what they make. I think mm-hmm. you've got to put money away for the rainy day. I think that if you try to keep a steady pace, that the highs don't become as high and the lows don't become as low. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, you expect in business to have peaks and troughs. It's not going to be golden every day. And then I think you prepare yourself that way for it through adversity. So. You know, you are, um, to me, I, I know you're a big hockey fan. You're a big Leafs fan. And... Once in a while, a great player comes along who's working super hard, who's mastered the fundamentals, but who makes it look easy. Right. And 
I think if I were to have a knock on Walter Schneider, is you make it look easy when you're not. You're a grinder. Oh, yeah. But you sure. make it look easy. You do it with a certain style. You've always had this panache. You've always had this patience about you. Let's walk through this process here because... I think so many people think you need to become a self-obsessed ghoul that loses all perspective of life and family and values and whatever else to get to the top. It's lonely at the top because you've got to become an ass to get there. And, Walt, you're one of the best people I've met. You have a heart of gold. You're a giver's giver. And yet, you're also driven, ambitious, hugely successful, and have passed that on to the next generation. Let's do this for a second. Let's tell people a little of your story. Walk us through your journey to where you are today and what the different stages of your development were. I think it starts with just being grateful. I've been grateful every day. Mm -hmm. I've been so fortunate through this life of mine. I've been exposed to so many things. I was just grateful. I think you start Mm -hmm. being grateful. Mm -hmm. I was born in Toronto, as I said earlier, product of two immigrants. Tough neighborhood in Toronto, moved out to the burbs. You know, it's interesting, in the schoolyard in Toronto, we settled things by, you know, fisticuffs. And that was a pretty normal course. And I remember moving out to the pretty white-bred suburbs when I was a kid and going out to the soccer field and the school bully, my first couple of days there, would steal the soccer ball at recess break. So I didn't think that was too cool. I walked over to him, took it back, he shoved me, and I clocked him once. So, <laughs> so I, I didn't know any better, so I, I took out the bully in my first day there. So, And so the next thing I know, I'm standing by the, uh, the principal's office, and my mother gets hauled in, and her broken English has explained that her son cannot be a thug at this school. But... Needless to say, we learned how to settle things, you know. Yeah. And, um, so that was that. And then I, of course, went off to high school. I went to university. Uh, we couldn't afford to send me away to school. So I went to the University of Toronto. I graduated there, paid my way through school. And How'd you do my, that? What were you doing? Uh, I just had summer jobs. I mean, I worked probably from 14 on at a variety of summer jobs. I worked at a lumber yard. I worked at a sales desk. Uh, it's funny. We worked at this particular lumber company. And I kind of knew I, I had a bit of a knack for selling then because you used to get a premium to sell these particular panelings. You get 25 cents a sheet more for selling a particular paneling. Yeah. Well, I was the guy, the summer student, that would sell like, you know, 10,000 sheets of paneling. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever. I directed people to what they right. needed, right? You know, listen to the customer's needs and wants, and here you go. And so, I, yeah. so I learned my sturdy sales skills, and I got out, and when I graduated from university, there weren't a lot of jobs around. And I do remember graduating university and being offered two jobs. One was by the Scott Paper Company and one was like by Dun and Bradstreet at the time. So the Scott Paper Company offered me eleven thousand five hundred dollars a year and I thought that was crazy because I was making seven thousand a summer selling lumber. And then the Dun and Bradstreet guy pissed me off because uh, he offered me ninety four hundred dollars a year and I told him this is ridiculous and he said, Well that's all you're worth and that really peed me off. So then I went off and I said, I'm gonna go sell some houses and I did. So I got into real estate business, sold some real estate for a while. I went to work for my partner, who ended up being my partner for the last 37 years, Frank Posler. Yep. And I worked for him. And then in 1978, uh, I became a recruiter, trainer, and sort of assistant manager in one of his branches. He had six offices and 150 salespeople. But uh, that was the time a lot of the traditional real estate companies were really under attack. And... Um, In 1980, I'm sort of fast-tracking this, but in 1980, Frank and I and a third partner acquired the uh, Eastern Canadian rights to Remax from Dave Linegar. You know, he says many times that he thought at the time it was his uh, worst decision he ever made, but it it turned out to be okay. Yeah, right. And uh, anyhow, but I mean, I always think that if, I say this quite candidly, I think if we had been someplace like the Carolinas or Florida, I doubt that he would have sold it to us, but 
we were buying something up in Canada. We were like, you know, Fort Apache, and if they're going to die out there, <laughs> let them die. Who cares? They're going to die. <laughs> It was the wilderness franchise oh, yeah, himself. Oh, yeah. What's up in Canada? Moose and deer, right? And a couple of fishing holes. But anyhow, so it was great. And, you know, and so Dave gave us this opportunity. And I remember um, we just went out and sold the hell out of franchises. And yeah. going into my very first regional owner meeting in Orlando, Florida, and I went around the room and all these other regional guys were announcing their sales. And it was like one, one, two, one, one. And here's a new kid on the block comes around to me and I said, 14, you know, and, <laughs> and more than 25 cents a sheet, right? Yeah, right. And one of the VPs at the time took me out of the room and lectured me. He says, well, we've only got checks for 10 of them. The other four are pending. I said, yeah, but I got the checks in my briefcase. You know, I was just too young to be stupid. Yeah. Well, let's talk about stupid because here's the thing. And this is the piece of the story that we often don't hear from anybody mm-hmm. is you were in a room full of regional owners who were successful people in their own right who built what became the most successful real estate company in history. Mm-hmm. And you're surrounded by that. How old are you at the time? 26. 26 years old. There's a lot of guys in that room that were older, more experienced, had a lot of money behind them. Uh-huh. How is it you guys were selling 14 when everybody else was selling one? Well, I think it was just a great combination. I think Frank and I have this incredible partnership that has gone for 37 years. And, you know, he brought a lot of maturity to the table. He's 20 years my senior. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, no, the Polzo Real Estate Company, he'll tell you this, you know, that the kind was in debt, like what, nearly $2 million. Right. But we had to sell ourselves out of a problem. And, you know, I mean, it was every day, every day we had to sell something. I can't tell you the number of times, Brian, at the the 24th and 25th of the month that right. we needed to make a sure. couple of franchise sales to make payroll at the end of the month. And, you know, we didn't pay ourselves. And, you know, we have in Canada, I have an interesting, my mother passed away a few years ago. And for some odd reason, she must have saved this. But in Canada, like it's like a W-2 in Canada. It's called a T-4. And I looked at what I earned in 1980. In 1980, my earnings were $15,500. We threw every cent back into the company that we made, Frank and I, just to stay alive. And, you know, we're proud to say that last year, the Integra company did just under $3 billion in commissions. Wow. So we sell a house every 64 seconds right now wow. in, in 2016. So we think that'll be somewhere under, you know, probably 58 or 57 seconds, every 57 <laughs> seconds in 2017. So That's great. Turning into the Henry Ford of real estate here. Well, But think about there's a lot of folks listening to this show who either they're in their 1980, 81, or 82, or 83 phase. Yeah. You were able to, obviously, you sold, and even though you were in need, because this is a big deal, you still did it with integrity, and you still did it with value. The company's name is Remax Integra. We've been friends for 12, 13 years, maybe longer than that. I've watched you always do the right thing. Was it that you were great at casting the vision? Was it great that you were speaking into people's lives? How was it you were so successful at doing that? What is it you would do that would make people say, I'm in, I'm going to go buy a franchise from this guy? I think if I were to analyze my selling skills, I think I'm a great listener. Mm. I really listen. I think that people tell you sometimes something, and you've got to go beneath that. You've got to look for what are they really saying to you. And I think sometimes you've got to strip it down, and I think you have to hold people accountable. I always ask a question in my sales process, if not this, then what? Mm. 
And I think people forget that. We've presented to thousands of people over the years to buy REMAX franchises and regional partnerships in Europe and the Middle East. And when we've walked through the journey, and if people are at that point in the sales process, I said, well, fine, you can say no, but then what? Because what I think people always look at, what is the price for doing this? And what I've always asked is, what is the price for not? Mm-hmm. And I think people forget that. Yeah. In the real estate sales business, I mean, people will walk the perfect home in front of a customer and they'll say, you know, oh, well, I don't think we can now. Well, then I have a couple of sort of constant reminders in my business that I've always believed in, in that one, that nothing stays constant or static. Mm-hmm. We're in perpetual motion. And I've always believed that there's never the right time. Mm. I always tell the story about when we started Remax Europe and Frank and I had come out of a recession here in North America. We'd lost a thousands of salespeople were rebuilding the company in North America and it's like 1994 and, and Dave has asking us to go ahead and do Europe and we hired four consulting companies to come and you know analyze the European marketplace no licensing in Europe no MLS no real estate associations nothing that we're so familiar with here in North America mm-hmm. and these four consulting firms from London Paris Frankfurt and uh, Switzerland came back and all four came back and said, no, it's not a feasible model. Mm. It's not going to work. And they gave us all these lists of reasons. But Frank and I had been on the ground for a while and we were looking around and we just had this intuitive salesman gut feel that this is going to work. And we thought, you know, for a variety of different reasons. And, you know, we went out and launched and we launched in 1995 in Switzerland. And, you know, a little minor detail in my life at the time you know, we're launching 6,000 miles away. I said to you all the criteria that why it wouldn't work. A little minor detail in my life that we had, Maria and I had three children under the age of six. Mm-hmm. And my youngest had just been born in 94. So, you know, we're sitting there, you know, struggling with all that stuff. And, of course, you know, trying to monetize this project, right? Trying to get the cash. And then and, and obviously we'd been bleeding for a while here. So, I don't know, you just stick at something. I think yeah. that, and I'll say this, being Canadian has been an advantage for us in the international marketplace. Mm -hmm. I think having European heritage and being Canadian were two, plus an incredible great product that we were selling. Mm -hmm. It was really advantageous for us. I live in the most multi-diversified cultural city, I think, in North America, maybe even the world, where we have so many ethnicities here. And it gave us a chance to really work with these people. So I was familiar with Portuguese people in Toronto. I was familiar with Spanish, Italian, Greeks, Macedonians. Uh, you You know the difference. And that was really advantage to us. Right. Almost as good as being Irish. I mean, almost. Yeah, we could straddle the line. We could <laughs> straddle the line, right? Yeah. Uh, so that was a huge advantage for us. So every step along the way, I think in my career, there's been four definitive periods in my career, and they've required different skill sets at each time. Clearly, the first one was the Canadian experience from certain kind of 80 to 87. We took the company from a standing start to become number one in Canada. We've held number one. Actually, June marks our 30th year in a row that we've been number one market share in Canada. Which, by the way, it's one thing to get to the top. It's a whole other thing to stay at the top, right. and that's that's remarkable. Right. So we've, we've done that. And then was, I call it our U.S. period, which has been that sort of 85, 86 to 95 when we launched our U.S. regional operations in the nine states. And then in the Europe business, kind of 94, 95 till now. And then I think more recently, the last four or five years, is kind of being the steward of numerous companies and, and a variety of different interests that we have, not just within Remax, but outside of Remax as well, right? Yeah. 
and it's become this uh, overnight success, yeah? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we look at it, you know, we, we, you talk about these things. I mean, we live in a world today that is massively impatient. There's so many people will listen to this message and go, yes, he's a dreamer. He had a vision. He had a goal. Uh, he was working hard. He knew right from wrong. Right? They get those principles, and they align with it. And, and again, we'll talk about our kids here in a minute. You've done a great job with your kids. But a lot of folks today, they want to do the dream. They're even willing to do the hard work. But there seem to be not as many folks who want to persevere. It's a grind. It has curveballs and setbacks and challenges. There is no easy road to success. It's much more of a cross-country race than it is running on a nice track. Speak to that a little bit. You're also an observer of culture and society and so on and so forth. This whole dynamic of perseverance, stick to never giving up, where did that come from in your life? Where do you see that missing in many people's lives? I think it was probably ingrained in me as a young child. If I wanted something, I had to go out and get it. I think that was sort of driven in me. I mean, I remember starting my Remax company, and I remember so I've always invested in real estate, and I've always been a great believer in buying and owning the stuff and renting it. But I mean, in the beginning, I couldn't afford to have guys painting my rentals. So, you know, weekends and evenings, I was painting my rentals, and I was selling Remax in the mornings, and I was selling Remax at night. You know, I just found that, a lot of this stuff that people, like, I really don't care about going to the Moshishi restaurants in town. I, don't, I mean, it's nice that I can go there. It's nice yeah. that I can afford to go there, and I'll do it once or twice. But, but after a while, it becomes same old, same old. And like you, Brian, we've traveled the world, and we've mm-hmm. sat in some of the finest places, you know, to sit and eat and enjoy, and it's been fun. But I've been in some of those Shishi restaurants with you. <laughs> well, you have been. You have been. <laughs> But I always pay. Yeah, I love you. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. I just I just keep grinding and grinding and grinding. I mean, if there's a recurring theme in this message today, mm-hmm. it's to keep on grinding. Where's it come from, Walt? Where's that come from? I don't know. From? Maybe in the gene pool. Maybe yeah. you just... You know, my father said an interesting thing to me. My Sadly, my father died young. He died at 61. Mm-hmm. You know, he certainly was a hardworking man. He died a few months after retiring. And But he said something very interesting to me. He came to Canada when he was like 28 or 29 years old, and he said, you know, I came here, couldn't speak the language, didn't know the customs, didn't know the habits, wasn't educated here. And he said to me, look, you've been educated here, you know the habits, you know the customs, you know the language, you know the rules of engagement. He said, you've got a leg up on that right now. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's interesting. The immigrants come here because they've left nothing behind. They're trying to build something. And I think there's probably... Canada, probably sometimes there's fear of failure. I think sure. that's a motivator, too. You don't want to fail. Yeah. You want to create a better life. I think one of the things that's served me very well, Brian, is that I'm not hung up on material things. I'm really mm-hmm. not. I've been fortunate, and I've, you know, I've had some success, but I, I'm just not hung up on it. It's not about driving some Bentley. I really couldn't give a damn about that. I mean, yeah. the thing I enjoy driving most is my pickup truck and uh, <laughs> my Ford F-150. Yeah. I just don't get captivated by the, yeah. the $25,000 gold watch. Right. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I'm just releasing a book here in a couple of months called The Emigrant Edge, and it's the seven traits of successful immigrants. So why it's so easy to make a big coming here in America. And, you know, you have kind of exemplified all seven of these things in our talk so far. Wow. The Emigrant Edge is, you know, they've had these disadvantages, and then they come here. You know, you have your cot at your lake house. Your lake house is a fantastic estate, but you have your little cot there. One of the principles is don't forget where you come from. Gratitude, the work ethic. You know, it seems to me what I love about this, and and this is the point I make in the book, is that you can pass on these character qualities and these traits. Your father left you a great legacy. Your mother also, I know, is a huge influence in your life. 
but they left you with this emigrant edge. And the next dynamic is even though your kids, your kids grew up, they did not have a cot. Your kids did not have hand-me-downs. Your kids and your kids are fabulous. But your kids are also workers. They go about it differently than you. They go about it in a different way and, and so on and so forth. But what I see is this was passed on to you. You've successfully passed it on to your crew. And it's great to see. It's great to see. We made them work, right? We've made all our kids work. My daughter was, you know, in the office at 13, 14, uh, working the summertime, filing, I mean, doing mundane jobs, filing paper, answering the phone. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my youngest worked at a marina when he was 14, 15, up by the lake. He spent the summers working, cutting lawns, washing boats, you know, pumping gas, delivering boats for people. Conrad worked in construction. So, I mean, we, we made them work that shell. We worked, put our way through college slugging beer, you know, in, in a tavern there doing that. I, I just do not believe in the silver spoon. Right. You know, uh, I, I don't. I don't think I ever, honestly, Brian, I don't think I ever fit into the country club set. Yeah, me neither. uh, I mean, I can certainly make my way around that. I can certainly join in, but I really don't like, you know, I don't fly well with Biffy and the pink shirt (laughs) and the the khaki pants. (laughs) That's just not my game. I mean, so. Well, you know, know, we've always been brothers from a different mother, right? I mean, that's the same deal. Yeah, I mean, I play hockey still in a league right now, and I'd like to tell you we're still quick, but we're not. But, <laughs> You're smart. But, you know, I, I play with some of the coolest guys, and they're firemen and postal workers, mm-hmm. and, you know, they sell beer, whatever. I mean, and there's a couple executives in there, too, but it's just really cool because we're on the ice. We play hockey. We cover each other's back. Guy goes in the corner and somebody takes you out. Your line is going to take him out because you know, <laughs> and you, you know. It doesn't matter that this guy runs a three billion dollar organization. We no, got his right. back, right? Because exactly right. they're firemen and truckers. Right, and, right. But you know, same as me. If somebody takes my line mate out, I'm going to go in the corner and let's go. You know, and so <laughs> you learn that. And I played sports a lot in my life. I think athletics really teach people teamwork. Mm-hmm. This is essential. I think we in North America. Once you travel the world as you have, as I have, once you travel the world, you realize how incredibly lucky we are to be living in these two countries of Canada and the United States, Mm -hmm. how incredibly lucky we are that, you know, you in your case, you came over in your own, my case, my parents came over. You know what? There just aren't better places. Yeah. There just aren't better. And we are, I mean, I know this is being listened to around the world, and there are incredible countries around the world where you know, great things happen, but we have such abundance where we happen to live. You know, Brian, unless you have some physical abnormality or that you have some challenges, you know, that we are so blessed here to yeah. be able to do what we do and pursue what we do. And I get so inspired by people that have come through incredible hardships, whether it's abuse, whether it's addiction, whether it's physical challenges, whatever, right. that have risen above. I so admire these people because they validate every day what I believe, and that is that you can become anything you want in right. time. Yeah, and not as hard as in other places. You know, one of the great experiences of my life was a few years ago I went down to, I, I did a tour of Europe, and we, myself and our producer, David Lally, went to, I think, seven or eight countries on your behalf, firing up your troops and getting them going. But I also went down to South Africa. And, you know, down there, you know, we, we were driving to these different cities, but we'd go past these villages. So I'm driving through, <laughs> I don't even know where the heck we were, in the middle of nowhere, and we drive through this village, and there is a few buildings, and then on the outskirts, a ton of huts and, you know, the tin shanties, you've seen it right. all. And there's this six-foot-tall picture of myself in a window. 
in a Remax office in the middle of who knows what. And I go, you got to be kidding me. So we pull over, we get out, we end up meeting this guy. And what a story this guy had. He had 14 brothers and sisters. He said he was the first member of his family. He showed a picture of his family. 14 brothers and sisters living in a 10 by 10 house with a corrugated roof on it. No one in his family had ever owned a home. He had flown to Atlanta 10 years before, heard our event. We didn't even have processes in place, but he, he found a way to get training, everything he could, and he just put it in place, became a successful salesman, a black-as-night African working in a white real estate office, and then eventually set up his own real estate company with 25 people, and it was just in the middle of this, No, and I'm thinking, man, you know, what this guy had to do to be successful was a lot harder than what I had to do. And when I went back home, I, I had that you know eye-opening experience. All of a sudden, my problems were not problems. The challenges I was facing were not challenges. My complaints became embarrassing to me when I had my eyes opened up and, and got perspective from someone else. I know you get that regularly because you travel so much to all these different places. You know, Brian, whenever I get like a, a one of those moments, we all have them where you start, you know, a little bit of that poor little me or right. how the heck did this happen? I catch my breath. I step back from him and I say, okay, let's look at this now. By the way, a little minor detail, Walter, you signed up for this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I signed up. For oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, wow. I remember one time I had signed a franchise owner that was nothing but grief for me. Mm. And anyhow, I went to a convention and, and, you know, I've been fortunate to work with Dave Linegar for 37 years and founder of Remax, a friend yeah. of mine. And, you know, we've shared a lot of very, you know, precious moments together and, and very private moments together. I was a young Remax guy. And anyhow, I was moaning and whining about this guy that I signed and la, 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 la. I just went on for a couple of minutes, you know. And Linegar said to me, and we were at one of these regional meetings, and Linegar said, hey, Walter, let's go for a walk. And uh, with a lot of superlatives attached to this discussion, I won't <laughs> share that with the audience today, but you can just imagine yeah. <laughs> what letters these words start with. <laughs> and um, and anyhow, Dave said to me, but this is the key piece. He said, did you take his check? And I said, yes. He says, shut the up. Right. Because I had a chance to make a decision. I had a chance to decide to take that check or not take that check. Right. And I took it. So because I took it, I had a custodial obligation to do my very best to take care of that person and get past that, his problems. Yeah. And so I really learned from that, and I really have tried to govern my career by understanding the custodial role that I play. And I think we all do that. The realtor that sells a home to somebody needs to tell them, you know, this is not a south-facing garden. Oh, you're going to get train noise there. You're going to get this there. You're going to get that there because it'll really serve you well in the long run and be totally transparent. And I've tried to be that. I just had somebody in my office last week interested to buy a franchise. And it's interesting. My youngest is now selling franchises for our company. And he dug this prospect up and he's coming in. And, and I really could tell after 15 minutes that this guy was not qualified. And I said to him in front of my son, I said, sir, we do not want your money. And I don't think you're a fit. That's mm. a very powerful thing to be able to do. Yeah. Because you walk out, now your sales rep that works with you thinks, oh he's, my God, he's crushed. Watch, yeah. He just screwed up a deal. Yeah. Here. But I, with the lesson learned there is that there's right and there's wrong. Yeah. And you've got to 
work on the right side. Well, and that kid of yours is a stud, I told you. Anytime you don't have space, I'll take him here at Buffco. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's switch gears here a little bit, because I want to talk on the other side of the ledger. You are married for 30 years to the marvelous Maria, who is just a doll. I love her. Brilliant partner, great woman, three great kids. You've built a very prodigious business that required a ton of travel. You know, people don't believe the work-life balance is possible. You know, people say, oh, I made all my money, and then on my third wife, I did this. How's Walter Schneider been able to do it? How have you been able to do both and the good life at work and the good life at home? Well, I think we're a great partnership. I think I've been blessed with partnerships in two places in the mm-hmm. business world, with Frank for 37 years and with Maria, 30 years actually this May, which I don't know when this goes to air, but it'll be the, yeah. this May 22nd, which is a week from now. July 4th, oh. we'll be celebrating this episode, Walter. So. Oh, oh, good. So there you go. I think at the end of the day, we just balance well. She lets me run. Mm-hmm. And she's given me that privilege to run. She's been an incredibly supportive partner. The kids, you know, we've really made the rearing of our children, the raising of our children very central to our marriage and, mm-hmm. of course, each other. Along the way, I think we've paid a sacrifice. I think that we as a couple are just starting to do travel now. We're mm-hmm. starting to take trips. Yeah. There's lots of years that, you know, I was home for those hockey games. I was home for those recitals. I yep. was home for that, and I just turn around and fly out again. Yep. You know, I've got over 2 million miles now just with Air Canada, I think, and so plus all the other carriers I've been on. So, yes, I don't know. It just worked well. We, we were in sync. We worked at our marriage. We've been, I think, for our family, extended families, the aunts, the uncles, the brothers and sisters and so forth, the, the focal point. And I don't know. Just We got committed. You know what? Here's the magic, I think, to a great partnership, be it business or personal. I think that, first of all, you need to share common goals and beliefs and dreams. You've got to have constant dialogue and exchange of ideas. And are you both on the same track? You got to communicate really well and not carry grudges. You got to have adversity solving, get that done right away. And I think the most important part of any kind of a partnership, and I can say this with Frank and I, and Maria and I as a husband and wife, is that you never keep score. Mm. I think that anybody that thinks that partnerships, marriages are 50 50 is delusionary. Mm-hmm. Each partner brings a certain strength at a certain time. And it's the whole idea of either you're pulling or you're pushing or you're tugging together and you're working together. So that's why. Partnerships and marriages get into trouble. I think they, people start keeping score. Well, yeah. I, I'm not fulfilled. I'm not this. I'm yeah. not. I mean, sure. And this becomes, in my mind, this shallow pursuit. And uh, you're never going to have a, a balance. Maria is much more charming than I am. <laughs> no doubt. Well, I've never shared this with you. You know, I had great role models with my parents. Married 63 years, six kids, living in the same house the whole time, going home to see them here in a couple of weeks. And I had a great role model of them and, and the fact that they're totally selfless, totally dedicated to their kids. But the challenge for me was my dad was a house painter that went to work in the morning and came home in the evening and so on and so forth. And when I started to do my life here in America, I didn't find many role models out there. And then when I met you, I went, you know, you're like that big brother. You're a little further down the path than I am. And that was always what impressed me about you, Walt, uh, you know, that you had the great desire, the ambition, the drive, put the priorities in the right place. And, you know, I, I can speak to the same. You know, Beverly and I are 27 years. we got the six kids. And there is a price to be paid. You mentioned that. That's the thing about this is in the pop psychology world we live in today is there's no price. Doing the right thing has a price. We did the same thing, which is I traveled. I did my thing. I was home for every game. I coached. I did this. I did that. And we had to sacrifice. And we're now on the stage ourselves where we're traveling 
and enjoying a bit of life and so on and so forth but there is a price to be paid and maybe there's a lot of folks aren't willing to pay the price now but it seems like you pay now or you pay later right oh totally i mean i try to always be home for the kids birthdays and i can tell you one time i was in switzerland and one of my sons conrad is uh, january 19th and i had a whole planned out it was all been great i mean i did my meetings i ran to the airport I got to the airport, and there were sandstorms in uh, Switzerland. Can you imagine a sandstorm Jeez. in Switzerland? <laughs> How does that happen? <laughs> no, I get, but sand? So anyhow, all flights were canceled. And, you know, I sat there, and I felt really guilt-ridden. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, Dad, don't worry, it's cool. He was really cool about it. Yeah. And I think he was like 17 or 18 or something at the time. And, and, you know, I came home the 20th the next day, and it was all fine. But what I realized, I had depended on third parties to get me there, i.e. the airlines. And it didn't work. But thank you for that compliment, by the way, yeah. Brian. Look, you know what? We're very fortunate that we have great life partners that uh, have both, you know, I think kept us inside the guardrails mm-hmm. and have also driven us and also let us run. You couldn't be doing what Brian did or I did unless you had a partner that, that signed up for the deal. That's right. right. That's right. And plus, I think we wanted to live, Marie and I really wanted to live inspired lives. Mm-hmm. You know, so faith is a big part of our life. Mm-hmm. And our family is a big part of our life. And, you know, community... That's why I think I got into some of these, uh, well, I'm quite involved in philanthropy here in Canada. Huge. So, you know, I really enjoy doing that for great causes. And uh, I think that we have an obligation, I think, for us that have been blessed with abundance, that we have an obligation to give and share. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny, I sit on three charitable boards, foundations, and Marie and I have our own family foundation as well. But I realized when I got in the first one, I sort of sitting around my first board meeting, and we had to sell out this event, and I thought, well... I can sell stuff. I know how to do that. (laughs) (laughs) 25 cents a sheet. (laughs) So anyhow, it was funny because uh, we had to go sell these tables for this big fundraising event, and the tables were like uh, 20,000 apiece. And I'm going, okay, I guess I got to go to work, you know. And then sure enough, like three weeks later, I'd sold 18 tables. (laughs) And (laughs) it was, you know, the relentless pursuit, right? Relentless pursuit. Uh Uh-oh, he's coming. Here he comes. (laughs) And then we went to our, our, our sort of our, our committee meeting for this event, and I walk in with all these tables sold, and the next guy, two, <laughs> three, I'm going, freak, this is deja vu. I've been, I've been in this room before. <laughs> yep, you're a beaut. You're a beaut. I've been in this room before. Yep. Oh, yeah. Let, let me switch gears on this, and then I've got some cool wrap-up stuff that we do that our audience seems to love. I don't know if anyone else is enjoying this, well, but I'm enjoying the heck out of it. So Thank thanks great. for spending the time. Let me ask you this and you do this all the time, let's say someone is coming to you today and they're going to start out a business. What would be your best advice to them? Well, understand that how much you're going to have to work. Yep. Just don't say, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're going to own it. You're going to own, live, and breathe this stuff. Mm-hmm. So don't think this is a nine to five, that this is nine to midnight and you're up at six the next day. Mm-hmm. You know, make do that extra mile. Spend every dollar like your last dollar. Mm-hmm. Spend incredibly responsible. Understand that your actions are going to re-impact a lot of people. You know, I have to meet payroll every month. I've met payroll for 37 and a half Mm -hmm. years. I take that very seriously. People depend on me. They got kids in school. They got mortgages to pay, car payments to pay. I take that very seriously. So, you know, understand if you're going to be a leader, you need to behave like a leader. Mm. The toughest thing about leadership is saying no. I remember early in my days, and I was young and single when I started this company with Frank, and I guess we got to a certain event, and uh, I guess Walter maybe had one or two beers that he shouldn't have had, but uh, uh, under the pains and penalties of perjury, Your Honor. <laughs> uh, 
So, you know, uh, the next day I had a little bit of a headache and we're sitting at breakfast and, you know, Frank being that incredibly terrific man that he is, looked at me and said, how are you feeling today? So I had a little pain and he had a great line, which I've never forgot. He said, the general does not drink with the troops. Mm. So when you're in leadership, behave like a leader. Mm. You know, you can't be buddies to everybody. You got to yep. have to say no. You're going to have to lead by example. Don't hand down to other people things that you're not prepared to do. Be prepared to do anything at all in the company. I'll yeah. go make a sales call today, anywhere, anytime, because mm-hmm. I want to demonstrate to people that I'm still willing to make that sales call. I'll pick up the phone. You know, understand that in building a business, you're going to get incredible rejection. Understand in a business that you need to declare yourself. Don't be afraid. You know, declare yourself. Put this stuff on a vision board. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to be the top realtor in the community. You're going to have the number one real estate company in your marketplace. You're going to have the finest construction company. You're going to be the best mortgage broker, whatever. Declare yourself. Yep. But declaring yourself, you know, you've declared yourself to your peers. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want to suffer embarrassment. So you would go that extra mile when it's need to be. So those are a whole bunch of things. I don't think anyone is more important. I think they all intertwine, Brian. Mm -hmm. And they all come up at different times. Yeah. It's awesome stuff. Oh, boy. There's uh, three or four more podcasts we could do on just what your last riff was, Walt. And it's, it's liquid gold. I hope people receive it as that. I'm a pretty successful guy. I have four pages of notes from our talk today. I'm inspired listening to you, and we've had many an inspirational evening together, and Lord willing, many more to come. I have a few questions that I do at the end of each podcast that folks really like. It gives a little different slice of life. Again, you didn't want to know any questions, and I haven't given you any, so this will be off the top of your head. Uh, Here's five rapid fires. First, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Uh, stay humble. Mm-hmm. Love it. What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Uh, I wish I could play music. Just so you know, I've interviewed at least 100 world leaders, famous people, sports stars, whatever else. That's always answer number one. So, Mrs. Murphy, I wish I'd have sat at the table and listened to your lessons instead of taking the money and going into town and playing pool with my friends. Anyway, (laughs) number three, what book has been most instrumental in your life? From Barbarians to Bureaucrats. Ah, yes. I quoted you this morning to my CEO, Brother Dermot, on that very book. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. Okay, favorite song, music. I know you're a big music lover, but what is, uh, you're in the Merc, it's been a long week, and you're heading home, and you want to get the Walter Jam on. What are the Walter Jams? Music or oh, genre? I, I love R&B. I think of R&B. That's sort yeah. of iteration. I love R&B. Not one song in particular, but yeah. that whole genre. Nice. A little late-night jazz. Very good. Okay. And then uh, what movie do you watch over and over again? Oh, what have I seen over and over? Oh, the Rocky movies. Come on. I love it. <laughs> what is it about it? Is it, I, it could, underdog? Is it the yeah, underdog comes uh, back, never gives up? Yeah, exactly right. Against all odds, the underdog just kept getting hit and all the time just didn't know how to quit. Just got yeah. the crap kicked out of him <laughs> kept coming back. I mean, the, the later ones got kind of hokey, but the first two, they were just, uh, you know, they still choked me up. I, yeah. I've probably seen them 30 times. Yeah, and the music and everything. Yeah, the music was great. Yeah, yeah. well, you are the Rocky of the real estate business, my friend. Uh, and uh, it's just an honor to be your friend. You know when you have your lake house and you've built this magnificent place and you bring people up there and you do your events for charity? Well, you kind of show it off. And I kind of feel like today I got a chance to show off 
Walter Schneider to a much broader audience and maybe people who don't know you have never heard of you. You're one of the quiet heroes that makes up the uh, tapestry of life, and uh, I love you. I'm proud to know you. You're a role model to me, and I love your family, and I, I really appreciate you being with me here today. I think you've shown a light to a lot of folks that the good guys really can finish first. The good guys can win. It just takes a bit of work and a bit of effort, and uh, I appreciate you so much, Walt. Well, thank you, Brian, and thank you for sharing the journey with me. It's been a hoot. So you, you bet. Well, let me finish today's show the way I do each one. Walter will appreciate this. I'll finish with a quote my grandfather used to always say as we left the home. May the roads rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back, even if it's from Canada. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. We'll see you next time. <laughs>